Howdy folks, welcome back to Pacific Tuesday from New Sprint Commando. I'm your host, Ed Moore. Beware there will be spoilers for the two books that I'm going to be talking about today. Both of these issues out October of 1982, as that is the topic of the Pacific coverage. Now, if you need to get in touch, you can blue sky me at Teal Productions. Teal Productions is also on Twitter, as is News P. Commando, and Teal Productions is on Facebook. Teal, in all of those instances, is spelled like the color T-E-A-L. I am IndieMan at gmail.com is the email address. Indie is I-N-D-I-E. Comicbooknoise.com slash T-N-C. Tango November Charlie is the website. Now, first up, this October 1982 coverage is Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, issue number eight, scripted and penciled for us by Jack Kirby, inked by Mike Thibodeau, colored by Janice Cohen, lettered by Pally Jensen. Now on the cover, uh, by Jack and Mike and Janice, we have an image of Captain Victory, who seems to be laying on his back, uh, perhaps flying a, a ship, uh, directing something, saying, okay, let's do it, stand by for Zap Out. And Zap Out was uh, the narration, come and check it next time from last issue. Uh, we were told that they were going to Zap Out. So we'll find out what Zap Out means. Sorry, I keep doing it like that. That's just, it's my impression that that's the way it's supposed to be said. You know, I don't know. You won't find it in a textbook, the slide into everywhere, the narrator tells us on the cover. Inside front cover is an ad for Homo Geneticus, Silver Star, another Jack Kirby book. It appears to be scheduled for coverage in a couple more episodes, so we'll finally get to see what this Silver Star has been all about. Are we civilized, medieval, primitive, or just our little old selves? You know, I know, but suppose a crew of cosmic aliens didn't want to stick around to find out. There's a razzle-dazzle option for Captain Victory and his Galactic Rangers. That's what the narrator tells us on the front uh, first story page. Think she'll go for it, Captain Victory is saying, and then somebody over here is holding almost what looks to be a little post-it note that says, Request, zap out. Just, you know, so we can say that one more time. Uh, I've said it, what, 18 times. Next is a two-page spread where we get our creatives listed here that I've already gone over. But more importantly, we see that the Dreadnought, the type of ship that they're on, uh, the Tiger, which is the name of this particular Dreadnought, is driven by a being that is from other dimensions than ours. Uh, it is not a third dimensional being. Maybe it's a fourth dimensional or perhaps a fifth dimensional, but just a portion of it is here in the third dimension. And it's what they use to navigate the ship with uh, as far as uh, interstellar distances. It communicates by way of a screen that the words print out because it can't speak. It can understand our words, but it can't speak. It says, I hate you damn crazy fools. Get me out of this. Apparently, uh, the creature is here not of its own volition. I believe it's been captured and being held captive, but not necessarily mistreated in any other way other than it is not allowed to go on its merry way, which would be uh, unfortunate enough. Very monstery, tentacly, amorphous, squishy, jelly-looking creature. It it combines all of the nightmarish kind of uh, other-dimensional creatures that I think you probably haven't ever encountered in, in other media. You can read the screen. She looks awful in the third dimension, and she knows it. 
Can't say that I blame her. Think of what we might look like trapped in the fourth or the seventh, says Captain Victory as he's looking in on her. He and Clavis uh, have a conversation about why Captain Victory thinks it's a female. Uh, does he think it's a female? What do they think it's like there? What do they think her perception, her in quotation marks, perception of things are here? You know, back and forth, just kind of filling uh, space until here on over. Clavis holds up another little uh, piece of paper that he's orienting towards this creature that says, request, zap out. So, uh, well, let's see if she's mellow enough to help us with this, he says, holding it up. You bird brains are breaking my heart. I'll help if you help me to. And then the panel is cut off. We can't see what the request actually is. She loves us, Clavis. The word is go, Captain Victory says. So moving on. In the story, we see Captain and Clavis uh, proceeding on through the ship, passing soldiers and people busy doing their jobs, some scientists, some computer technicians, back off to outside of the Tiger as it is hovering over this section of, what was it, Philadelphia, I believe, is where they were here on Earth. They're looking out a portal down, and then we see down on the ground where Terran is in control of the ground troops here, and they're being... They're preparing to muster to be taken back up to the ship to leave so that everyone can zap out uh, and go on their merry way. Terran and the American, I think he is, general here are going back and forth again about, well, you know, we're going to get ready to leave. No, you're not going to leave. We need to talk to you. We need to check out that ship. Well, that's cool, but we're going to go and um, next we'll be back. Uh, 200 years. See how you guys are doing? You really think we're going to let you go? Well, you know, we're going to go ahead and leave and, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Then we have the reappearance of Orca, which we haven't seen in several issues, I think. And he has, uh, diving out of the hive here where they have been. It's, it's been full of water. He's been checking things out, but he's also been gathering downed soldiers. These micro soldiers that were micro troops that were part of the assault on the insectoid, uh, nest. Orca, Orca, yeah, Orca has been uh, collecting the troops for a an appropriate burial, and he jumps up and he's talking to Taryn about it. And Taryn's like, "Dog, look, we we gotta go," you know, just like I've been telling the general over here. And Orca says, "Well, no, we can't leave because we need to round up all these micro troops. They died in in such uh, valorous battle that we need to be sure to do something uh, appropriate with them." And here we have Taryn who says, "It's." Zap City today, fella. The captain's ordered a zap out. Um, so we're, we're getting ready. Let's get our rear ends off this planet, he says. Finally, Terran convinces Orca that they will gather all the troops that they can and get ready to leave. Terran refocuses on the general, uh, again, going back and forth about, well, we're going to leave. Well, no, you're not. Yada, yada. Next page, we're told, meanwhile, near the edge of the known universe, a huge monitoring station reports to Ranger Center. Report 005793, conditions unchanged. No stars, no planets, no action. Quadrant X undetected. Amend that report. We've got visitors from Quadrant X. Well, if they can't find Quadrant X, how do they know that these people are from Quadrant X? And these um, people that are uh, attacking this monitoring station turn out to be Fenarkin, Merriam, and Ursan. 
They come zooming in on like little floating uh, blocks like they used to build the pyramids in Egypt. You know, big square rock blocks. That's what they're floating in on the station on. And when they arrive, Fenarkin takes a big swat with his Nova stick and just completely trashes a section of the station here, allowing Miriam and Ursan to gain entrance. And then they start their physicalness. Miriam just fighting. You almost want to see if she's going to use her hair like uh, Medusa does of the fantastic, of the uh, Inhumans, excuse me. But uh, she apparently, the hair isn't animated. She just, it whips all over the place from where she's running to and fro and, and doing her thing. Ursan, though, runs in and grabs another dude, and ugh, you're roasting faster than most of your fellow unfortunates. Guan, take off. Conversing with you now is fruitless. You weren't much of a talker in the first place. So he's melted yet another individual here. Uh, we have the unborn fetus here, the the unborn brain with a pot belly kind of character, interesting character. It's reached into the ship and pulled out yet another piece of equipment that we are told is an information core from this station. So it was some kind of drive from the ship that they attacked last issue. This is a information core from this ship. So they've got it and they're dragging it along and the the voice, whoever is in control of Quadrant X, opens up a portal so that they can go straight through from where they are to Quadrant X. A the the lone surviving individual on the Ranger station Station Vega. This turns out, or no, it's calling Station Vega. This is Ranger Center calling Vega Station. Um, he gives a quick report, and then the station blows up. Back on the Tiger, we're having a report of sections being a okay in prepare for zap out, so that they can take off to try to find Quadrant X, and we have heavy weapons. Section of Supply, Engineering, Orbiter Reconnaissance, Bone and Tissue Repair. Clavis is the last to report, and he reports in for the crew. And then Captain Victory gives the all clear to this multidimensional creature who tells them, Don't build speed. Blast off with maximum warp, or more if you can do it. I shall resonate in conjunction with this effort. You don't waltz into hyperspace. You just cease to exist where you are. And we're watching from the ground as the ground troops are watching the tiger. Then all of a sudden, the, the sky opens up in, in blackness, like the sky disappears in a portion. Uh, I assume that that blackness is the portal that they're getting ready to enter. And the ship does. And when it does, it changes physics and reality momentarily where it was. Uh, the, the city is bent and twisted beneath the tiger. There's an, a panel here that is an image of a big tree that's been twisted and warped. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine men embedded in the tree. Kind of like uh, they went to phase through the tree, but then got stuck. And it seems that they're okay because the one is saying, don't stand there gawking, kid. Get us some help and tell them to bring saws. So uh, they're alive and everything. I don't. I don't know how they're. Yeah, I don't know how they and the tree are occupying the same space at the same time, and and no one is hurt. Uh, the general winds up in front of a anti-nuclear protest with people in the streets harboring signs and whatnot. Then we have another dude who is uh, Marty Mayflower, who's upset because his rad motorcycle has been twisted and whatever, almost like something that you would see from Kirby's uh, Forever People. 
And then the final panels on Earth are the sheriff that first encountered uh, Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers. And the news is trying to interview him. And his final words are, ask him about a guy named Captain Victory. You may get an interesting story. At any rate, the dreadnought tiger no longer exists on Earth. It is hurtling through strange realms, strange doors, strange conceptions. And we have a big Kirby Ditko-esque page actually here of the tiger zipping and zapping through various parts of unknown space. Coming next, the unknown doors to God's many mansions, narrator tells us. Full page ad for Silver Star. Uh, again, like I said, a couple more episodes and we'll be talking about Silver Star. What we see through our telescopes can be very deceiving, of course. The big tube on the planet Sandorak could not only focus on faraway worlds, but could actually study the lives of their inhabitants. That's how the family of Ranger Martius Clavis caught the Roman syndrome. And basically, we see that they observed and have decided to live the Roman lifestyle. We're having a, a gladiatorial combat here between Clavis and his big brother, trying to settle an argument until finally their grandfather, who is Caesar, grabs them up with a big mechanoid and pulls them apart. We have a little bit of story time here. Story time with Adam. No, it's not with Adam Cole, baby. Sorry. Uh, different podcast. And we see that the, the town, the city, the, the planet that they're on really replicates the, the Roman times that we have seen, um, actually in movies and on television. I assume, you know, that that's what Roman life looked like. I have no idea. I guess they would know for sure by now. But it, it very much replicates that, except that there is the integration of higher technology. So their chariots are floating. Uh, they have floating barges rather than being on water. They have view screens and equipment and everything like that. Finally, Caesar has taken Clavis and his brother uh, to an observation booth. And there they are, the humanoids we emulate, living out their lives before our very eyes. We judge them not, but merely shun their evils and share in their virtues, the Caesar uh, grandfather says. Next, you won't believe what you're going to see, but who among us would say it couldn't happen? Watch the superscope uncover the unseen world. And so that is a, a second little five-page story that they have here in this issue. Same creatives as the main story itself, Kirby, Thibodeau, Cohen, and Jensen. Next, we have a full-page ad for Gru the Wanderer. Issue number, well, no, actually, this is to subscribe to it. Issue number one is our next book that I'm going to be talking to here momentarily, actually. Twisted Tales subscription advert here on the inside back cover. And then on the back cover, we have... The Wonder Warriors. What strange force has transformed these aliens into cosmic terrors? And so finally, we see Finarkin and Marion without the mask and armor that is on. Uh, Marion is bald on top and three quarters of her head, except for the long green locks that start just above the ears, kind of like male pattern baldness, right? But she has these long, long locks, some gnarly green-haired eyebrows. She's got some rough eyebrows. But I will say that Finarkin here next to her has got the hairiest eyebrows I probably have ever seen. Dark black hair, black eyebrows, black facial hair that's cut in a cool, interesting little pattern here. And then Urson and all of his uh, melty, absorby ugliness and the living fetus thing back here, which is still completely armored. It doesn't really show what 
he or she looks like. But these four creatures that we have seen for two issues now are called the Wonder Warriors. So I guess that would mainly be the uh, the takeaway from that back panel. All right, next up, Sergio Aragona, Screw the Wanderer, issue number one from Pacific Comics. This is scripted, penciled, and inked by Sergio Aragonis, with co-plotting and dialogue by Mark Avanier, colors by Gordon Kent, and letters by Mr. Stan Sakai. The cover that we're looking at is Gru. Um, very iconic cover. I've seen this because it's the very first cover of his first issue of his uh, eponymously named book. So I've seen this everywhere. He is standing holding a sword, a dog down here by his leg, wanting attention with a huge shadow of another warrior casting from lower left across Gru, but his attention is fixated on the dog as he's getting ready to either attack or defend himself, Gru. For those of you that don't know, Gru is a barbarian, but he does wield twin katanas, decorating uh, the, the the pommel of the sword, which uh, the Japanese term for it escapes me. But the, the windings on the pommel, the decorative windings that you grasp, are colored counter. So if it's colorful outside the design, dark inside the design, the other sword is dark outside and colored inside the design. So the two pommels are uh, colored mirror opposites of each other on his on his back. He, he wears the katana on his back. In, uh, let's see. The This book is... The Galactic Rangers issues have not been reprinted anywhere as of now that I can find. Uh, this issue of Gru, though, has been reprinted in the Gru Chronicles that came out from Marvel in 1989. Uh, issue 1 covers this. Now, I don't know if it's an issue by issue or if it's a compendium of issues per Marvel issue of the Chronicles book. I do know at one point that Gru winds up in the part of the Marvel Epics comics line there after a short stint here at Pacific and a one-off, I think, through Eclipse, maybe. And then it goes on to Marvel for, I don't know, 120, 130 issues. Nice, nice long run. Okay, inside cover is a bio of Sergio Aragonis. The first story page is a um, real-life uh, seven panels message from Sergio. And if you'll bear with me, I'll, I'll read this little piece here that he's done in his own style. Uh, very important for how Sergio Aragonis, the creator, thinks and how he manages his property Gru. Hola, I'm Sergio Aragonis, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the first issue of Gru the Wanderer. For many years, I've wanted to share the stories of Gru with the world, but the comic book publishers all said, if you tell the tales in our magazines, we own them, in total, forever. For years, they wouldn't even discuss any other arrangement. A creator would ask for a teensy percentage of his creation and be told no. Sergio, it's impossible, they told me. They had hundreds of reasons why an artist couldn't share in the profits his idea made. And it was impossible until along came new publishers like Pacific Comics offering creators the same rights they got in any other field. And you know what happened? Suddenly all the publishers found a way to do it. Amazing. No? So, I'm pleased now to share the tales I've waited so long to tell. Ladies and gents, meet Gru. And as he says that, he's motioning across his body to where he is lifting up the bottom corner of the panel and lifting it with his hand as if to offer you a peek behind the curtain into the world of Gru. Now that, um, and, and I, I try not to get 
too much into backgroundy information on the show. I, I just want to talk about comics. But that uh, Sergio's attitude is very, very important. He's almost, uh, he's in his 40s, 37, uh, 87, 50. So yeah, he's in his mid 40s by the time that Grew actually finally got his, his first true book. At this point, he had been showing up on and off a little bit in Mad Magazine and a couple other places. Uh, Sergio, very prolific in Mad Magazine, actually. But his own creation, Grew, uh, he he wouldn't do anywhere because everybody wanted to own it. If if you work for me, I, I will own your product. And Sergio maintained, no, it's my creation and, and I will own it. So it, it, it was nowhere really overly much to be found until Pacific Comics got in touch with Gru and uh, they hashed out a, a contract by which Sergio did not lose any of the rights to Gru. Uh, Pacific just wanted to publish the book make some money, uh, share the money, and, and that's what they were after. They were not after owning the rights to the creation. And and that goes for uh, all of these others, it's my understanding, characters from everybody else that Pacific Comics has been dealing with. They wanted a piece of the pie. They did not want to own the pie and hand you a piece. They just wanted a piece of the pie that was made uh, through their involvement. So finally, and, and up till this day, Actually, from 1982 up until now, fairly continuously, there has been grew in print because he would only do this if he maintained the rights and, and other companies along the way. Well, particularly Marvel, but it's the Marvel Epic line, uh, which was a different, different creature at the time than the Marvel main line as far as how, um, editorial and how Marvel, the company, treated and owned the product, um, Epic, Epic Comics. But so finally we have Gru and we're going to have him up until, um, I think just within the past couple months, uh, the final issue of the latest storyline has come out from uh, Dark Horse Comics now. So we still have Gru to this day. Open up double page spread. Friends and Enemies is the title. We are told here by the narrator that in a time far away, in a land long ago, a warrior would roam from place to place. Not too long would he stay, for his soul called him Fro, and because most folks just couldn't stand his face. And we find Gru here hiding behind a very large tree. Uh, some birds appear in the tree as a large throng of soldiers of some sort are are charging, yelling, and screaming down a pathway up on a little hill elevated, and behind the tree is Gru as he's watching. There they are again. They want me dead so badly, but who do they work for? Who sent them, and why? And they're all yelling and screaming that they want Gru dead. We want to skewer him. We want to hang him. We want to skewer, then hang him. Uh, skewer, hang, stab, choke, burn, and then we may get really nasty, one of them says. So, there you go. Um, all of the throngs, there's probably 40 or 50 men illustrated. They're all darkened, though. Only the front three that are leading the pack are are colored. Uh, the rest are monotone and hidden in a cloud of dust. So we flip and we see that Gru, um, someone has a reason for wanting me dead many times over, but who? And uh, still in the background, all of these kill, slay, spear, smite, destroy, grew, each one, whatever expletive grew. So um, so he falls down and now he's crawling behind a bush that separates he from the thong, throng, <laughs> not thong, uh, throng, sorry. I need a place to sort 
things out someplace safe. And so Gru does something unique. He thinks, crawls, and finds a rock that he sits down behind. And he starts thinking, four panels of thinking. Each thinking has a different face. Final one, he scratches his head. We're told after many hours, of course, the high priest of Zumu. He's still bad about what happened that night many years ago. We have an image of Zumu and a companion walking uh, by Gru, who is on guard duty. Uh, he was a guard in the army of Captain Kohan, but his good friend Toronto, or Taranto, not spelled like the city in Canada. T-A-R-A-N-T-O. Taranto, I guess is how you would pronounce that. Uh, Gru hands off the guarding responsibilities to someone else and, and goes on. Now, something also to keep in mind, I, I may not do a very good job of that talking about these Gru comics. There are a lot of gags, uh, some of them verbal, most of them sight gags. Explaining sight gags in a uh, vocal-only method is is very difficult. There there has to be a visual <laughs> to it, but this is a podcast. It's, it's not a video cast. That's YouTube. Um, but here, uh, it's... It, it, we, we have a little injection of humor verbally because they ask Gru what the password is to allow anyone past. And he says the password is password. Cute. Huh. So there's a little bit of that's like everybody, the, the thing about online passwords, everybody leaving it as password. So Gru continues on with Taranto. Um, we have a little bit of display here for somebody of Gru's martial prowess. Now he is a Barbarian who is overweight um, to his his le- um, okay. The character is drawn very humorously. Basically, he looks like a, a a pudding right blob walking around on two legs. His arms he has the overweight flabby arms uh, that we see expressed a lot of times. Long hair with a headband held away from his face, and he he's wearing basically just a tunic with a belt about where the belt should be. If he has pants, there are no pants. If he has shorts, you never see them. Don't know what goes on past that tunic. But there is, you know, the male area down there somewhere. And Gru is walking around on two rather spindly legs, considering that it holds up the bulk of this body for years and years and years. And the legs never muscle up. He's always... He always looks very not like someone that you're going to be worried about wielding a sword, other than he has a sword. You know, it doesn't look like he's going to be able to do much with it. But at least at the start of his journeys, Gru does quite well with his with his swords. So uh, we're walking around, and something that Sergio does quite a bit in this issue is there are expansive scenes, either in a panel or in a whole page depending on how much real estate he wanted to allot to it. And your focus is on the characters that are in color because the rest of the scene is drawn out, but it's all monotone color, a completely different color from any of that used for the principles that he wants you to focus on. So there, there is no confusion where your attention is supposed to be in those situations. So Gru and Taranto and a companion walk into a bar. Yeah, no, it's it's not a joke. It's what's happening in the book here. Gru gets a table, uh, grabs up one dude that's standing here off to the side and uses him as the uh, cleaning device to wipe everybody, everything, every goings-on off of these tables so that he and Taranto and, and Taranto's companion have a place to sit. 
they solicit a barmaid, and and Gru is is giving her the once over, maybe even the the wiggly eyebrows, you know, to indicate uh, maybe later, baby, you and me. So next up, they decide that they do want women. They have wine, right? They have food. Now they need the women. The women. Uh, so he goes to another section of the bar where this dude in a in a frock of some sort is just covered in women. They're just hanging off of him. And he goes to speak to this dude, but there's a guard, grabs Gru by the nose and says, halt, friend or foe. And Gru returns the grab by grabbing the dude's genitals and squeezing. And the next panel, the dude's crumbled on the floor, says, pass, friend. Gru says, smile, ladies. Gru is here to enliven your lives. Ho, old man, how about sharing your women with some real men? I'm Gru and I... I I suddenly recognized the old man. It was the high priest of Zumu. And he remembers back the last time he saw the high priest in all of his livery. Is that the word? Livery? Uh, but here in this bar, the, the priest is shaking his head and says, Quiet, you blithering fool. Keep your voice down. You want everyone here recognizing me? Don't you realize what would happen? I'm an exalted person. If word got out that I frequented this place, the scandal, the shock. And Gru gets this... Uh, this look on his face and says, never fear, sir. No one will ever know the high priest of Zumu came here. And he says all that out loud. He says, oops, as it's, it's a two panel page here and everyone else is this, uh, monochromed out. I was going to say grayed out, but it's not gray. It's kind of a yellowish or maybe it's intended to be a clear tone, but it's, it's all well rendered. You can see people and everything, but there's no color. Well, uh, everybody's flesh just about is colored flesh tone, but what they have on and uh, their surroundings are not colored. So you see them doing their own thing when Gru is saying this. And then in the next panel, after he said it, everyone in the room, and there's probably uh, 40 or 50 people drawn here, their attention turns to the priest of Zumu. Uh, he took it too seriously, Gru says. So seriously, if you ask me, being excommunicated isn't the worst thing in the world, but what if it isn't him out to kill me? Who else could have sent those assassins on my tail? Maybe Princess Canaria. No, she couldn't. She wouldn't. That was just a major misunderstanding, or excuse me, a minor misunderstanding. It was just after I'd been promoted to courier. Gru, the princess wants you. And the princess says, Gru, you must take this message to Prince Tercios at once. It is of the utmost urgency. His very life depends on you reaching him with this. Fear not, princess. Gru is on the job. And when Gru is on the job, the job is, shut up. Just deliver it, you imbecile. So he takes off riding in the horse on a, on a horse here, riding into the woods. Ride, 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 ride. Until suddenly, halt, none shall pass. Yeah, it puts me in mind of Gandalf, right, on the bridge there. Yeah. Um. Lay down your weapon. And Gru has drawn his sword and says, Stand fast. It is Gru you are challenging, and it will be your last challenge. And the dude sheathes the sword and says, Gru? Gru, don't you recognize me? It's your old friend Taranto. Taranto. Taranto, good to see you as he's jumping off his horse. Now one side. I seek Prince Tercios. So do we. We're waiting for Prince Tercios, too. Why not wait with us here? Good idea. My rump is killing me. Gosh, how I hate horses. Hey, Gru, join us for some cards and cheese dip. Now, those of you that know Gru know that he really digs his cheese dip. Not now. I need sleep. Wake me up when Prince Tercios arrives. I have a message for him of the utmost importance. Gru hangs up his swords here on a tree and uh, goes to sleep here behind a tree. And he's awoken by the sounds of battle. A battle and Gru was left out. Taranto, why didn't you wake me up? As Gru jumps into the fray and again 
Gru is colorized and a little um, carry all, what are those things called? The, the transporting box that important people are transported in and held up by poles, a man in front and a man in back holding the poles, sampan or something like that in, in Eastern religion, uh, Eastern areas. But uh, yeah, I can't remember what they're called over in, in England, I think is where you saw them mostly. But it's being run through by a sword and it's colored. So you know that that is Tercios. That's where he is, having just been run through. Turns out that they were waiting for Tercios to kill him. And the message from the princess was that her dad had arranged for someone to ambush and kill Tercios. So Gru was able to do, deliver the message right before the prince died. Next morning, this is real time. I haven't eaten for days. Food will strengthen me. Who is it? Who is out to kill me? If I can find out the who, I'll know the why. My friend Taranto wouldn't know who it is. He hears all from Grapevine, but he's miles away. I need money to find him. Hmm. Means I need to find a job. Old man, as he's sitting eating someone's ware here at a little local restaurant. Have you heard of anyone needing a fearless warrior? Why, yes, I have. Word is King Kohan needs a new captain. His last one was a real jerk. He was a real incompetent, a bumbler of the First Order. Ever hear of him? His name was Gru. And he leaves, tossing a coin over his shoulder as he's leaving the place. He says, yeah, thanks. Somebody else comes up and says, pardon me, but are you a freelance warrior? We need one. Gru says, a band of soldiers is camped, or no, the, the dude, after Gru follows him, says, a band of soldiers is camped in our town, creating havoc and destruction. First, they start drinking. Yes, yes. And then they start the pillaging. And and then they start the raping. Yeah, says a woman here in the, yeah, like she, yeah, enjoys the raping. That's kind of weird. They are evil. If you're a hero, we will pay you anything to rid us of them. So Gru takes on this job and he sees, he, he comes up uh, to what he perceives as a regiment and he attacks pulls his sword and he's hacking and cutting and whatever through it. And we find out that this regiment of soldiers that has occupied this town is being led by Taranto. I see your arm for battle. What luckless fool will taste the might of your swords, Gru says as he's trying to greet him. Guess, Taranto says as he's drawing his sword. And that gets us back to where we were at the beginning of the very beginning of the book. Taranto is one of the three that is leading, although he looks kind of differently here. And yeah, so, oh, well, at least I led them away from the village. But if Taranto thinks I'm going to be his friend after this, he's in for a surprise. Sergio down here in the bottom, as the narrator tells us next time, the tale of Gru and the missive. See you then. Adios. And we have a moral of this story from Sergio. The friends we make and the friends we lose are all better than the friends we want to make us lose. Oh, no. The friends we make and the friends we lose are all better than the friends who want to make us lose. There you go. Sorry. I forgot to put the emphasis on the correct syllable. All right. Next page is a full-page subscription advert for Rue the Wanderer. Then a full-page advert for Pacific Presents Number 1 that has... The Rocketeer in it. Letters page, Gru Grams, which this first one is from Mark Avanier, just uh, kind of filling you in on what's going on and asking for letters, basically. Silver Star advert, next page. Uh, Silver Star Captain Victory advert, next page. Wild Animals advert, which um, we will be talking about on the episode that I talk about Silver Star's number one. 
uh, or Silver Star number one, will be Wild Animals number one, edited by Scott Shaw on sale on November 20th. And then we have a five-pager here of the sage. He roamed all about the land in a day gone by, and they called him the sage. Definitely, you can tell it's Sergio. He's the artist. Uh, Mike Avanier, uh, Mark Avanier, excuse me, Stan Sakai and Gordon Kent finish out the creatives. Um, he is a wizened old man with a pouch and a dog. Uh, he has a long white beard and a his hair tied back in a top knot. He's carrying the um, an, an oriental allusion to the big staff with something at the top. Normally, you will see um, Oriental priests have some sort of ornamentation or, or big gold rings or something like that at the top of the staff. Sometimes it'll be like a jug of, of something. The mage has tied to the top of the staff a jug of something. So in, in my mind, it alludes to the Asian walking staff that uh, I've seen priests have at times there. And other than the pouch slung across the other shoulder, kind of like a long-handled purse uh, with leathery flanges hanging off the bottom of it. Um, yellow tunic looks like he's wearing a black, uh, some kind of Middle Eastern, maybe open-legged, almost uh, what we would call a skirt kind of uh, thing. And just He's old. It doesn't look like he has any teeth when he talks either. His his mouth is folded back in the drawing like he's gumming everything. So he comes upon, the sage comes upon a band of men who are trying to take down a large herd of some kind of wild animal. Looks like maybe it's a, a buffalo, maybe, or something like that. And they charge it, these men, and some of them are scared, some of them are surprised, and one is looking over here in the corner, uh, the buffalo, I mean, <laughs> looking with a look on his face, wondering, what are you doing? Uh, so immediately it it turns, I mean, these men are armed, swords and spears and whatnot, but the, the these horned creatures, these buffalo, uh, turn the tide very, very quickly and, and run the soldiers off. There must be a way to do this without getting close to those dangerous beasts, one of the survivors says uh, to the sage. And the sage says, you need spawn, your, the need spawns the answer. And this is in quotes. Um, several times per panel, the sage will talk in quotes and then he will talk normally. Uh, this is one example here. The need spawns the answer. I can tell you how to do that. It'll take, um, wood and rope and manpower. Heed what I say, and the feast shall be its own rewards. And then later on, as he's supervising, the sage is supervising, in quotes, he says, man bends his back so he can arise even straighter. And then the next panel, he exclaims, it's done, behold. Phew. And the sage motions and says, the catapult. That's what he instructed them to build. No sight is more filling than a deed done, in, in his quotey words there. So it's it's almost like he is... um. Well, sage. He is saying something sage and then saying something normal. Um, next panel. Heed a wise man and you shall be one. Pull that basket down and tie it. No words can equal a demonstration. Your eyes see truth. It, it works, says one. Thank you, old timer. No more do we have to sneak up close to those beasts. Free advice is always the best value. I'll return and claim my dinner share later. Hours pass, and the sage comes back. Ho! Already the catapult sings to announce the evening meal. Men, is not that invention a boon? 
And then we have a full panel here of the results of using the catapult. As the men are gathered around in a line to be shot by the catapult, we see off in the field, the field of buffalo. They're uh, grazing. And then situated instant amongst, between, and around all the buffalo are the men that have been catapulted uh, face down, hands, arms down, spear down into the ground with just their squirmy legs hanging up above ground. Some of them are being investigated by these cattle, you know, wondering what, what the heck is this thing. But for the most part, uh, nothing is going on. And then the leader says, in response, Sage said, men is not the invention of Boone. And the leader says, great, old timer. Now all we need to do is work on our aim. Wah, wah. So, yeah, it's very sight gaggy. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to continue talking about the Gru um, as they come up from Pacific Comics. But I don't know. I, I hope I, I do them well enough to keep you entertained for the 20 or 30 minutes that it takes to talk about the book. Otherwise, I'd, you know, if it doesn't work, you guys can pass up and come by for the next book, next issue. I'd understand completely. So there we go with our first multi-book episode of season 2024. Looking at my handy dandy list here, looks like the next up will be Elf Lord issue number two for the next Pacific, uh, not Pacific, but the next New Sprint Commando episode. So, Elf Lord number two. Talk to you guys then. Ciao.